Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> I love the enthusiasm in the room today. I have no doubt that it's due to the understanding of carbohydrates in the diet. That is outside. Our Cook, Eat, Learn program, I want to thank them today for... Yeah, this seemed to be working. I'm sorry. I'm not sure why. Maybe we change the room. Uh, but you'll be able to hear Tim. Can you hear me? I'll just speak loudly. So uh, Cook, Eat, Learn was here. It was to, again, educate us around healthy eating. And uh, I hope you enjoyed today. I want to first introduce the specialness of today, which is the Lewis B. Matthews Lectureship. And I want to uh, read to you a little bit about Dr. Matthews' uh, professorship. It was established in 1990. It's a memorial to Dr. Matthews, who was a skilled and beloved physician at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center for over 30 years. He was a general internist with a special interest in hypertension and vascular disease. He spent the majority of his career at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Clinic, first as a primary care physician and later as one of our medical directors. He was the quintessential generalist physician, deeply respectful and supportive of his patients and valued highly for his wit and wisdom by his colleagues. As a physician and as a medical center leader, his integrity was beyond reproach as he invested himself in the problems of those for which he bore responsibility. In his honor, the Matthews Professorship provides support for inviting to our campus a distinguished leader, scholar, teacher, or clinician in medicine who embodies the qualities of mind and heart for which Dr. Matthews is remembered. At this time, I'd like to welcome Dr. Matthews' daughter-in-law, Lisa Matthews, who's here with us today to the Medical Grand Rounds. We thank you for joining us and for your generosity and spirit in helping us to bring distinguished faculty to meet with our residents to present their clinical work and their scholarly work at our Medicine Grand Rounds. I'd like to now introduce our 2015 Lou Matthews visiting professor, Dr. Timothy Walker. He's a gastroenterologist and a clinical educator from Australia with a deep commitment to improving healthcare outcomes for patients in resource poor settings throughout, through direct clinical care, clinical teaching, mentoring, academic program leadership, public health policy development, and clinical research. Dr. Walker is the academic head of the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of Rwanda College of Medicine and Health Sciences and honorary senior lecturer at the University of Rwanda in Butare, Rwanda. He got his medical degree from the University of Melbourne. He did his internship and residency at Geelong Hospital in Victoria, and he served as medical registrar there uh, for the years 20, uh, 2003 to 5, staying on as a GI registrar, which is like a GI fellow, and then being a GI registrar at Western Hospital in Melbourne. He then did a master's in public health and tropical medicine at James Cook University in 2008, receiving it in nine, and followed that by a graduate diploma in divinity at Reform Theological College in Geelong. In 2011, he joined the faculty at the University Teaching Hospital in Butare, Rwanda, and he's now, as I mentioned, the academic head of that department and senior, honorary senior lecturer. He's been engaged in delivering care in parts of the world that are very special also to us and how we think about the world 
His research interests have been in viral hepatitis, in H. pylori and dyspepsia, and on non-communicable diseases in the developing world. We are delighted, Tim, that you are with us today. I know you've had a week with us to meet a lot of people, and now we want to hear from you. Thank you. So good morning, everyone. It's lovely to be with you. Um, thanks, first of all, so much for having me. I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Rothstein for the kind introduction, for Dr. Kiefer and others um, who've um, been so instrumental in organizing me coming over. And of course, um, thanks to the Matthews family. Um, looking, I, I was able to have a look on the internet and read a bit about uh, Dr. Matthews. Uh, there's, a, there's a fine article in the, in the Dartmouth Medicine magazine. So if you, if you want to read more about Dr. Matthews, I encourage you to read this. This is a, a great article written by a resident um, who actually had an encounter with Dr. Matthews when Dr. Matthews was a patient um, in his later years. So um, I encourage you to read that if you'd like to read more about what is obviously an exceptional man, clinician, educator and leader. So Today, really what I want to do is talk about some of the ways medical practice in Rwanda differs from medical practice in the West and talk about how this affects our role as, as medical educators in Africa and then maybe give some personal reflections on how working in Rwanda has benefited me and, and maybe how that might um, impact on your practice as well. Um, Rwanda is a small country uh, tucked away in Central Africa. Um, if you need to look at a map, I did the before I first went to Rwanda to find out where it is. Um, it's sort of tucked in, uh, I guess, to the, the west of Tanzania and the east of Congo in Central Africa. Very small, very densely populated. 12 million people in, in a very small postage stamp country. Uh, I don't really have many relevant disclosures except to acknowledge that it's been the generous support of CMS Australia and many friends and donors in Australia that's enabled me to be part of the clinical work and medical education work that I've been doing for the last few years. Uh, I think the outline largely reflects the, uh, the learning objectives, so we'll move on. So I want to start by thinking about Africa and about how we think about Africa. Because I think when I look at the Western media, what I see when we, we hear about Africa is what we, what we hear about is we hear about poverty. And so I think a discussion about, about Africa and how we think about it, a good spot to start is to think about what is poverty. And there's kind of a traditional economic neoliberal definition of poverty, which is, which is defined in terms of lacks. It's defined in terms of stuff people don't have. So I, I look at someone in a setting and I say, they haven't got access to clean water. They haven't got access to health care. They haven't got a sufficient income level. And what I do is I define who they are and what they need in terms of lacks. Now this definition has some great benefits. One of the great benefits is that it's easy to measure things. The second great benefit of a definition like this is that it encourages you to immediately look at filling some of those holes. It encourages you, you know, if people haven't got fresh water, you go and drill them a well. 
So the way we think about poverty with this definition is in terms of delivering things to people that they haven't got. But there are some problems with this definition as well. One of the problems with this definition is that uh, we may not agree with the person we're looking to serve about what poverty is. Right? We might think they're impoverished because they haven't got an iPhone 6S. And they, might, they may not agree with us. So we have to be careful in thinking about poverty that we don't impose our values onto other people, even in areas where we know, you know maybe in areas of clinical care where we know that um, providing people with fresh water, say, is associated with better health outcomes for their children. So one of the ways that people have started to think about poverty is in terms of disempowerment. So this includes the idea of lack, but what, it's, what, what the analysis says is that people are poor. What makes people poor is not their lack of things, but the way their lack of things or the way their lack of opportunities or the way their lack of education prevents them from leading the life they want to lead. It sounds like a subtle difference, and it includes the lack definition, but it really points to a way that you and I, as, um, as clinicians and as university, uh, university staff, can be involved in changing poverty. Because if poverty is about disempowerment, the most empowering thing in the world, I think, is education. And what we have in this room is many, many expert educators. So. This is kind of, I just, I just wanted to start there because I think it's important to think about when we, when, when we think about Africa, when we think about poverty, think about what definition we're using and what our approach is going to be. Um, Dr. Rothstein's um, sort of described my journey into global health a little bit and I think I did test the depth of the river with two feet. So <laughs> I think that's, um, that's maybe a pertinent proverb. But I do think that this conversation goes in interesting places. And I do think that I didn't have any idea um, where it would lead when, when I first uh, went to Africa as a medical student back in the late 1990s. So in this photo, I think it's easy to see lacks. The two children on the left lack their own bed. Right? There's two patients in one bed there. Um, this unfortunate mother on the right lacks a competent surgeon to deliver her baby, so she's got me instead. <laughs> um, doing, a, doing a caesarean in a small district hospital in Rwanda in 2003, um, when I first, uh, on my first visit to Rwanda. So I think while, while we see lacks, then we also have to think about more than that. We have to think about if we wanted to change these pictures, how do we change them? And as I, if, I, if, as I'm going to suggest, poverty is about disempowerment, then actually empowering people is really important. And so my motivation for going to work in Africa was really that I'd received the gift of many years of, of education, uh, both through school and then through university and through, um, through subject, subsequent postgraduate study. And I hopefully developed at least some clinical skills as a result. And so I guess I was determined to take what had been entrusted to me and to apply it to empowering others as best I could. 
Now, that for me looked like involvement in medical education. So it involved, involved working as a clinician, uh, working as a medical educator, um, and try, being involved in setting up and developing pathways for undergraduate but mainly postgraduate medical education in Rwanda uh, and mentoring, um, mentoring uh, juniors and faculty. Um, it's actually a great pleasure that we've got um, several of our uh, residents in, in the audience uh, this morning. But let's just take a step back and say, well, what does medical practice in Rwanda look like anyway? Because we under need to understand the context if we're going to educate people. So once again, I really like these two proverbs because the first proverb to me speaks to the fact that people are desperate for care. If you're sick, you want care. But of course, he who is sick will not refuse medicine points to the fact of the power imbalance in that relationship and points to the fact that we need to provide good medicine, not just any medicine, particularly in, Af in an African context. And then the second proverb there, to me, speaks to the system piece. It speaks to the fact that um, there's scarce resources in an African context. And while we might not define poverty, poverty in terms of lacks, there's plenty of things that are lacking that we see. And we have to balance those competing priorities. Um, in taking care of patients in Africa. So Rwanda is beautiful. Okay, it's, this is a photo I took um, down in southern province, not very far from where I live. And it's a beautiful, beautiful country. But being sick in Rwanda is not beautiful. It's not easy. So this is, um, this is Amy. Amy is about 21 years old and she lived in a village in southern province in Rwanda. Uh, about nine months before this photo was taken, she started to develop swelling of her legs and her face. She, she went to the local health centre several times and was given diuretics and discharged home again. Uh, but eventually, after doing this repeatedly, um, eventually um, they realised that she was not improving and sent her on to the district hospital, which is a couple of hours' journey away. Um, she travelled there with her mother, who was her carer, and her, her, um, she had to bring her own food and whatever money she could gather. That's actually all of, her, um, all of her possessions just there that she brought with her to the district hospital. At the district hospital, they found that her creatinine was elevated and together with the the, um, the generalised swelling recognised this as sort of nephrotic syndrome with progressive um, renal dysfunction. So she was referred on to our hospital, which is a further hour and a half up the road. And the hospital where I work, a 500-bed university teaching hospital, is the National Dialysis Centre. However, Amy's not going to get dialysis. Rwanda can't afford dialysis for its patients on community insurance. So she's, she's facing a very uncertain future. You can imagine how far she is from home, the level of resources that she had and that she spent to get to our hospital um, and to, to, meet with, um, to meet with our clinicians. And yet we have very little to offer, offer her. Um, some diuretics, maybe some counselling, a better understanding of the disease and, and what's in store for her in future. But tragically, she faces a really uncertain future going forward. So 
I just wanted to summarise some of the differences in patients, and maybe these are not all completely different from patients we face in the Western world, but, but I think that um, maybe Amy's story demonstrates um, how, how severe some of these challenges are. Amy is obviously extremely vulnerable. She's very far from home, um, in a strange environment, and has spent probably most of hers and maybe her family's resources to get to the hospital. She's got severe disease, but very limited understanding of what's going on. And um, again, maybe that's not such an unusual thing in a Western medical context, but it's certainly almost universal in, in Africa. I haven't got the skills, and perhaps we should ask one of my African colleagues to stand up, to, to unpack all the different attitudes to illness, healthcare, and physicians that she has than, than you or I have. But obviously she has a different cultural background and a different understanding of illness from what I have or what you have. And I think I just wanted to make the, the final point that, that actually having been around the, the Hitchcock Centre this week, that the level of complexity and the levity, level of severity of illness is similar. We're really dealing with similar sorts of patient populations at our tertiary centre in Rwanda from what you would see at a tertiary centre um, in uh, the US or Australia or other Western contexts. So this was just, this was a second case that I'm just going to do briefly that I think just points to disease severity again. So this was a 15-year-old girl who was admitted to our uh, internal medicine service with three months of headache and delayed progression at school. Uh, and we were able to get a, a CT scan uh, of her head, which was done in Kigali, two hours up the road. And she came back and carried this film back with her. You have to excuse the, the quality. My photography is not great. Um, but this is... This, this scan, um, as you can see, this is, not an, this is not an MRI, this is a CT scan. And so everything black here is, is actually water. So this is, this is severe, severe hydrocephalus. You can see um, you know, her, her actual her cortex um, and her white matter are almost completely effaced by the severity of her hydrocephalus. Presumably onset at some point in childhood. I spoke to an infectious diseases professor about this and his thought was that probably this is neurocystisarcosis. Um, I think he's probably right. Um, but just to point out again the, the severity of disease that we face uh, in caring for patients. The next thing I wanted to talk about was the healthcare system. Because not only are the patients different, but the system of caring for them is different. So while funding healthcare and improving access to healthcare is a key priority in Rwanda. The actual resources available to do so are rather different. So um, the percentage of GDP that you spend on, on health here in the US is higher than in Rwanda, but it's also higher than just about anywhere else in the world, I think. <laughs> so um, probably this would be a typical figure for, that would be similar to Australia's figure or many country in, countries in Western Europe's figure as a percentage of GDP, you see that actually because care is largely done within the public sector, that actually Rwanda is spending a larger proportion of its government resources on health care than the US does. Um, but when you, I think that the real impact of this slide is, is the bottom line, which is when you say, well, we've, we've kind of got a similar amount of our resources going to health care in Rwanda as in the US. 
But when you translate that through, it translates through to not to $9,000 per person per capita, but $70 per person. So that 130-fold difference in spending um, is something that we have to think about at a tertiary centre um, because we spend $70 really, really quickly. Um, and really, what, what, what this means, we'll talk about in a minute, but what it, also, what it does mean is that there are actually very... The other thing is that there are very few clinicians to go around. So if you look at the number of doctors in Rwanda per 100,000 population, in the US it's, about 200, it's nearly 250 doctors per 100,000 population. In Rwanda it's 10. Um, internists, it's even more stark. It's a 70-fold difference between uh, Rwanda and the US. But what you do see, and I think it's a mark of hope, is that that investment in medical... In, is an investment by Rwanda in the future with medical education. And you see that there's only a seven-fold difference, so relatively small difference in the number of medical graduates per year. So Rwanda is trying to catch up, but it's got a long way to go. One thing that's interesting about this figure, you see the figure of 10 there for the medical workforce per 100,000 population in Rwanda. Uh, 10 years ago, that was one. So that's, that figure has already increased tenfold um, in the last decade. Now, I've talked about the importance of understanding the system and the context. And this is a slightly busy slide, which I hope you'll forgive me for. But there are two or three points I want to make. This is a schematic map of Rwanda's healthcare system. And what you see is that um, there's about 15,000 villages in Rwanda down here, staffed by about 45,000 community healthcare workers who do a lot of the basic health promotion work, um, promoting healthy eating, perhaps, um, immunisation, all of these sort of things done down at the village level. But these people are, are largely, they'd be high school educated, but they wouldn't have any, they, they'd have short course education only. As we move up at the, at the health centre and health post level, there's about 800 facilities staffed by nurse practitioners that do a lot of, that basically do all of the primary care in Rwanda. So physicians don't do primary care in, in our health context in Rwanda. Their primary care is, is done um, purely by nurse practitioners. And they will do things like treating malaria, um, immunisations. Uh, they'll do most of the deliveries in Rwanda. Most of the normal deliveries are done at the health centre level. And then we have district hospitals, and there's 37 of those. There actually used to be over 40, but they've just created this new level of a provincial hospital. And kind of here is where I and many of the Dartmouth staff who've been, in, been to Rwanda work which is right up at the level of the tertiary hospital. So I want to make a couple of points about this. First of all, I want to point out that I work and my experience and what I can talk to you about is up here. But actually, most care in Rwanda takes place down here. And if you've only got $70 of healthcare expenditure per person per year, you're probably, or you're definitely, much better off spending it down here than spending it up here. So I can make a lot of noise about all the things that the hospital doesn't have that looks different from a tertiary hospital in Australia. But 
probably that money is, be is, is better spent down at this level um, in the health system. The other thing I just wanted to touch on was remember our, our clinical case we talked about, Amy? that actually the referral, the referral pathway up this system works pretty well. And that's actually the unusual thing for Africa. Often patients get stuck, they, get, they drop out of the system, they don't manage to get referred. But I think as Amy's story, story illustrates, many of our patients can actually be successfully escalated through the health system to the level of care that they need. So this is just to sort of give you the same thing schematically. So we have the yellow dots are the tertiary centres, the purple dots are the district hospitals, and the green dots are the health centres. And that's the whole of Rwanda. So it gives you a sense of the, the health coverage of the population. And if we just zoom in on a little area over on the side of Lake Kivu near Congo, what you actually see there is you see that there are several health centres in black there. There are a couple of district hospitals and there's a referral centre. And... Um, so, you know, these are all specific facilities. One of them is actually in a refugee camp. Um, I know refugees are in the news at the moment, but Rwanda has many, many refugees from the current conflict in Burundi and the former conflict in, in Congo. So they have their own health centres. And then there's a referral pathway from there into the referral hospital at Kabuye. And in fact, um, if Amy, Amy didn't come from this region, but if she had, um, we're the next level up the referral pathway. So she would have gone probably to a health centre, um, then, then maybe to a district hospital, on to a referral hospital, and then finally uh, to our tertiary centre. So what I wanted to point out was that Rwanda has made great progress by spending these $70 mostly at the bottom of the pyramid. So these are the infant and under-fired mortality figures um, over the last 15 years in Rwanda. And what you see is obviously a large decrease. The, you know, the, the scale here is down to zero, so we're not deal, dealing with just a small percentage change. We've really got uh, reductions of 70, you know, 70 to 75% there in infant and under-fired mortality. If we look at maternal mortality, it's similar. Um, we, we actually got an 80% reduction there, again, over the last 15 years in, in the maternal mortality ratio. Having said that, before we get too excited, I think it's good to think about where these figures start from. This is the, the morta maternal mortality ratio is per 100,000 uh, pregnancies. So we're starting from a figure of a th over 1,000, which means that 1% of pregnant women die in the peripartum period. In my home state in Australia, we have four or five, I, mean, I think we have five million people in the state now. If we have more than three um, peripartum deaths in women, there's a coronial, well, every death there's a coronial inquest, but if we have more than three to five, it becomes a major political issue. Here we're talking about, still talking about many hundreds and thousands of women dying in the peripartum period. So while this is down to 210, it's still got a long way to go to, to reach a, a similar level to what we see in the West. And finally, even in the, in the area of uh, fertility, obviously an important issue in a small landlocked country with limited resources that's already heavily populated. We see just in the space of 10 years now uh, a significant reduction in the number of uh, children per woman. 
which is obviously a major, of major public health significance going forward for the country. Um, and this has largely been achieved through contraception and other initiatives taken, that take place at the level of the health centre and health post. I now want to move to medical education in Rwanda. I see this chuckling already. And I, I love the first quote here because it just reminds me of medical students all over the world. <laughs> you know, across the river in a crowd and the crocodile won't eat you. I think, I think we've all been there and felt like that and watched, watched our colleagues and juniors feel like that as well. But I think the second quote is maybe the more pertinent one to our discussion. That really if we want to build uh, knowledge and we want to build empowerment in Rwanda, knowledge is like a garden. And if it's not cultivated, it cannot be harvested. So Rwanda has made a great investment in cultivating knowledge. And um, it's been my privilege to be a small part of that. And so I'd like to just talk a little bit about that. So this is kind of the history of medical education in Rwanda. Uh, if we go back, this hasn't projected beautifully, but if we go back to the 1960s, this was the first public higher learning institution that, that opened in Rwanda, in Botare, where I work, 50 years ago. If you want to go back and think about the first primary school or the first high school, you only have to go back 30 years earlier. So before the 1930s, there, was no, uh, there were no schools in Rwanda. So within the living memory of some of our elderly patients, there was no education available at all in the country. Between the 60s and the, and the 90s, obviously 1994 is an important year in Rwanda. It's the year that the genocide took place. And we're briefly going to touch on that. But the university reopened in 1995 and 96 after the genocide. Our postgraduate medical education programs uh, started in 2005. Uh, and then the HRH program, uh, which Dartmouth has been a key partner uh, with us in, uh, launched in 2012. And we're currently in year four of seven of this medical education initiative. Uh, the universe, all the public higher learning institutions in Rwanda merged in 2013 to make the University of Rwanda, which is modelled on the University of California model. Um, and we're starting to build a, a cadre of health, professions who are, health professionals who are interested in education. But there's a long way to go. And this picture is taken from the Kigali Genocide Memorial. And these are family photographs of people who died during the genocide. There were, I think, the figures are debated, but there were about half a million people who died in the genocide. And millions of refugees and hundreds of thousands of people incarcerated as a result of their, their implication in the killing. I think this slide is important because it reminds us that each of these people are loved, that they were family members, they were husbands, they were wives, they had social roles, they had social responsibilities, they had jobs. And many of these people were the health professional uh, workforce of Rwanda in the years prior to the genocide. People who were educated clinicians were particularly targeted um, by the killings. So Rwanda has missing generations of health workers that need to be replaced. A 
I think the other thing that we need to understand if, we, if we're going to get involved in medical education is who our learners are. And so I'd like just to tell a story of one of our learners because I think it's helpful to understand where, where he comes from, some of the challenges he's faced in getting to education, and also how talented, how talented he is. So this is, um, this is Dr. Fidel over on the right. Um, and he, he grew up in a village in northern Rwanda, a rural village. Uh, his grandparents never had any education whatsoever. His parents had primary level education and then worked as subsistence farmers. He, was, he, he succeeded in primary school and did well enough in primary school to get a, a government funded spot in a, in a higher level secondary school. So he went off to boarding school probably around about the age of 12, I think. And then he did well enough at his, at his uh, middle school exams, if you like, as they would be in America, year nine exams, to enable him to continue into uh, a university stream high school. And he did well enough in his senior six exams to enable him to reach the university and, in fact, to reach the medical school. So he was assigned to the medical school. He didn't choose to study medicine. He did well enough to be assigned to medical, a medical school placed by the government. And that would be a very typical story with many of our learners. He, by the time I got to know him, he was my language tutor. So he's, um, he's fluent in English, French, Kinyarwanda, Swahili. And you know, when I say fluent, he taught me things about English grammar that I didn't know, which is his, <laughs> you know, his third or fourth language. So, incredibly gifted young man, incredibly bright, um, the first person in his village to, to go to university. Um, so this is kind of the success of the Rwandan education system. But if you think about where he came from, it was probably a classroom a little bit like this. So typically classes in Rwanda might have 40 or, 40 or 50 students. And there's often a morning sitting and an afternoon sitting because there's inadequate numbers of teachers. So you might have 50 students going to class in the morning and 50 students going to the class in the afternoon. That was certainly the case when, when Dr. Fidel went through education. If you've, got, if you've got to teach 100 learners a day, your ability to cater to their individual needs is almost zero. So the typical way teachers manage this is that they write large, large amounts of information on the blackboard and then... Uh, ask the students to copy it down, memorise it and regurgitate it. The good thing about that is our residents and students have superb factual memories. <laughs> the challenge is, of course, that they haven't got the same level of skills in critical thinking and analysis. Um, and we need to develop those through our training because the Rwandan, the Rwandan health system needs critical thinkers. If you've only got small amounts of resources to go around, you need to be able to think, you need to be able to think in a systems fashion, you need to be able to analyse what's going on. And they're going to be far more effective in analysing the system than I can ever be as a guest in their culture. So one of the things that we've been part of together with many, with many of the members of the audience is the expansion of medical education in Rwanda. And the HRH program has uh, launched, as I said, in 2012, and it's a partnership between the Rwandan government and a consortium of 13 US universities. That, that number keeps growing. I think at last count it was up to 26. But um, Dartmouth has been one of our key partners. 
and it's funded by $100 million over seven years from the Global Fund and PEPFAR uh, through the CDC. Um, and the main goal of the, of the program is really healthcare professional education. So physicians, nurses, dentists, and healthcare administrators. Um, there is, there is a, a sub-goal of improving survival of HIV patients on antiretroviral therapy, which you can understand is important um, based on where the funding comes from. Uh, I was part of the mid-year review, and I'm going to give you my personal perspective because I'm not authorised to release the results of the midterm review yet. But these are some of the things that I think have been really successful over the last three, three and a half years of the HRH program. So we've had roughly 100 American faculty a year come to Rwanda for periods varying between two months and a year and get involved in clinical care and clinical education of, um, of many Rwandan health professionals. And that's definitely made an impact in terms of clinicians' knowledge and this, uh, and this knowledge base and their skills. We've got, we have had some improvement in diagnostic capacity, although there's a way to go, and I'm going to talk about that. Uh, there's definitely been improvements in delivery of care and things available now that were not available five years ago. But that's been accompanied by Rwanda trying to maximise the benefit. And part of that has been a rapid increase in the number of medical students. And as with anything, when you're trying to improve quality and quantity at the same time, it's very challenging. And I think that's something we face in in uh, healthcare all over the world is the, is the sort of concomitant drive for quality and for quantity of care to be increased. And there's definitely been a significant upswing in research. The, the number of publications just within a small, a small section of the university, just the health professions education part of the university, uh, dwarfed, I think it was 10 times as high as one of the other colleges, which is 10 times the size. Um, to give you an idea of the volume of research publications, um, uh, several hundred. And this is having an effect. So this is, the, this is the effect on quantity. So if you look back to the year 2000 in Rwanda, that, that year there were, there were nine graduates from the medical school. There were just over 100 doctors in the country. There was, of course, no internal medicine residency. And there were less than 10 internists in the country. By 2011, when I arrived in Rwanda, we had a graduating class of 40. There were about 600 doctors, and we, we had about a dozen internal medicine residents. Now, we're up to a, a graduating class of over 100, and that's projected to reach nearly 200 uh, in the next three years. Uh, the number of doctors is concomitantly increasing, but I think for us as, as internal, medi internal medicine doctors, this, this increase in the number of internists is the really exciting thing. From less than 10 trained internists in the country, we should reach 100 by uh, the year 2018 or 2019. There are still challenges, right? Quality, quantity is going well, but there are lots and lots of challenges in terms of quality. One of the big challenges we face in Rwanda is that it's much easier to go and work for a non-governmental organisation or to go to the private system and to be much better at reimbursed than you would be for seeing public patients. You remember that $70 figure. Um, if there's only $70 per person per year, there's not going to be a lot of money to pay your clinicians. And so people can often receive five or ten times the salary to go and work in a desk job uh, in a non-governmental organisation. 
perhaps related to that, we, we need new Rwandan faculty. There's lots of competing priorities for our graduates. But obviously, if we're going to build a sustainable system, we need to take the best and brightest and most motivated of those and turn them into educators. And you can see the changes in the faculty to student ratios. This is Rwandan faculty to student ratios over the last four years. So we've gone from one to 10 to one to 80. And the, the postgraduate ratios, there were equal numbers of postgraduates in faculty in 2011. Now there's eight times as many postgraduates as there is Rwandan faculty. So this is kind of a key strategic threat to the program going forward. And you see the number of new internists that are going to come out in the next few years. If we can, if we can turn many of them into faculty educators, we can turn this around. But it's a key strategic threat. And then the last thing that, that, I, think, that I think is important to, to, to acknowledge is that the health system is already taking up a similar proportion of the economy to the US. Rwanda's economy is growing fairly rapidly. I think it's 8 or 10% a year. But it's, it's hard to see how the health sector can grow at much faster than the rest of the economy from this point. So if the health system is growing at 8 or 10% a year, and, uh, but uh, how are we going to incorporate 10 times the number of internists into the system? I tend to characterize um, uh, internal medicine specialists and other specialists as like the lions at the top of the food chain. We need lots and lots of resources to, to, to have an effective practice. And um, what that means is we need lots and lots of healthcare dollars within the system. To, to sort of, we spend lots and lots of healthcare dollars. So if the overall system isn't going to grow um, tenfold in the next decade, um, where are we going to find useful places for these clinicians to work? And the answer may be that they're, they're working in a diaspora of countries across the region, I think. There have been successes. So this is just talking about internal medicine. And I think the HRH program has been very successful in changing our learner culture. Uh, we've introduced a chief residency. And in fact, one of our site chiefs is in the room today. Um, there's been an introduction of what I call novel learning methods. They're novel for Africa. They're probably old hat here. I was part of a PBL class um, just earlier this week um, with Dr. Kiefer. And we're trying to help um, facilitate, a, I think, a discussion and a recognition that clinicians have a responsibility to be patient and community-centered in the care that they deliver. We've introduced new curriculums and examinations. Um, Video, video conferencing of lecture, lecture series. Um, several people in this room have been help, part of helping that happen, including Dr. Brackett. And also try to find uh, areas where perhaps we can, we can jump ahead. So if one area is, cl is clinician ultrasound, which is an area that I know um, is receiving um, academic interest at the moment. But we're training all of our internal medicine residents in echocardiography, for instance, because they're going to be going and working at the district hospitals. And there's no, there's no echo technicians. Um, there's, there's two cardiologists for the country. So there's a real need for uh, uh, internal medicine clinicians to be able to recognize valvular heart disease um, and recognize pericardial effusions and get patients onto appropriate cardiac care pathways. The clinical challenges remain. 
Um, we, we, don't have, we don't have enough nursing staff. Patients are perilously short of money and food, um, as the example showed. Uh, there are, the, much of the care is actually given by patients' family members rather than nursing staff because of our, our shortage of nurses. We don't have enough diagnostics. I think we've talked a little bit about the spectrum of disease, which sometimes can be overwhelming. And for instance, in our 500-bed hospital, we have five ICU beds. Um, so very, very scarce resource. We probably have, effectively, we probably have one internal medicine ICU bed for a 500-bed tertiary hospital. Um, again, $70 doesn't buy you many ICU beds. Uh, this is just one of our, one of our ward contexts. With that, that's one of, one of our nurses in internal medicine in the middle of the room. And she's responsible for all these patients. The room extends this way. There's a couple more beds that are they're not in the shot. But roughly, roughly 15 patients. And this is, this is in daylight hours. Um, out of hours, um, a single nurse will cover two or three, two or three wards this size. So um, there's a definite shortage of, of nursing staff. This is just to talk about, about diagnostic capacity. So one of the major US uh, referral labs has over 3,000 blood tests available. Uh, a typical medium-sized center has over 1,000. My guess is that the, the Hitchcock Center is, is similar or somewhere between these two figures. Um, in Botare, we have 139. Now, the good news about that is that you can fit them all on one sheet of paper. <laughs> um, so that's, that's very helpful. Um, but one of the challenges is that even these 139 are not always available. So last month I, uh, I went through this list and just on a particular day in October uh, crossed out the ones that were not available. Um, so actually we had 57 pathology tests available um, for a tertiary patient population that may be of, of comparable complexity to the patients that you're looking after here. So you can imagine how that hamstrings your, hamstrings your clinical care. So the clinical challenges are really are very real um, for our clinicians, but also for our learners and our educators. And these are some of our graduates uh, from uh, our undergraduate programs. Uh, sorry, undergraduate program. These are medical school graduates who are swearing their Hippocratic oaths. When they leave, they go out to largely unsupervised practice at the district hospitals. So they, they don't get it. Their internship um, is, not, is not baked into their residency. They're not working in the tertiary centres under supervision. Um, within a couple of months, um, all of these uh, ladies and gentlemen will be out working in a district hospital, um, perhaps doing, doing caesareans, um, doing, doing major surgery, um, taking care of patients in, in medical wards, large, uh, in an environment that, that, is, that has very little supervision and very few um, safeguards. So we really need our clinicians to be um, quite robust and quite skilled and quite confident by the time they finish medical school. So just to think about that a bit more, we really need our Rwandan physicians to have very strong clinical skills. They need to be, those skills need to be locally relevant but if you've only got a small array of diagnostic lab capacity, then you, you better be able to take a good history and do a good physical examination because that, that is going to be absolutely critical to your practice. If you get the wrong end of the stick with the history, 
you're unlikely to get any laboratory information that's going to change your thinking about the case. Obviously, with patients like Amy, the, the, the importance of compassion and communication um, is obvious. And um, can, I think it's, it's hard to overstate that, that, that we may not have the answers for many of our patients in these contexts, but we can listen to them, we can talk with them, uh, we can be compassionate in how we deal with them. I think we need our clinicians to have the systems focus that, that we've sort of talked about. I think if you've got such scarce healthcare resources, you need, um, you need the next generation to think about how to allocate those best. So we need our, um, we need our trained physicians to be able to be part of this discussion and not just arguing for more money for their little patch, but instead be able to look at the wider context and speak in a reasonable way and be part of a helpful discussion about how do you best allocate those resources. Obviously, they need to be flexible. I mean, I think that that's sort of goes without saying. But I also think that there is a real need for them to be able to look at evidence from other countries and other parts of the world and think about whether that evidence is applicable to an African context. And I think that that's really vital. That's something that we're, we're trying to develop, the sort of critical thinking and analysis skills, I think are really, really important um, for graduates from our program, um, particularly if they're going to practice in relatively unsupervised environments. So I wanted to, to finish by just talking a little bit about um, how working in Rwanda has changed me. Um, I, think, I think my experience has been that I've learned far more than I've taught and that I feel like I've, I've gained far more than I've given uh, over five years working in Rwanda. And there are times when working in a different culture and a different system asks un uncomfortable questions about who you are and about how you think. And so the first proverb here, I think, for me, um, speaks to, the, to what we experience when we go to a new cultural context. And there were questions that were asked of me that I didn't like the answers of, I think, in truth. But I think there is real cause for optimism. I think that the second pro this Ethiopian proverb speaks to the fact that Rwanda has made tremendous gains um, in healthcare and in health professions education in the last 10 years. And I really think that the day is coming, that the night is maybe not over yet, but that the day will come and that better education and better, better trained clinicians and more resources means that Africans will get the care that they deserve. So I wanted to finish by, by talking about hope because I think I am deeply optimistic about the future of Rwanda and the future of health professions, education in the region that I work in. I do need to acknowledge the fact that I think I came in thinking I was more of an expert than I was. And I think it's very helpful um, and it's very humbling to work in a new culture and a new context where you don't understand the system, where you don't understand uh, how things work and you, even things like communication. Um, you, I think I grossly overestimated uh, how much Rwandans could understand an Australian accent for at least the first six months. Um, I do think that, so I do think that even if you're an expert in your field, 
if you, if you go to work in a cross-cultural context, I really encourage you to be teachable, um, to, to not come in as the expert, but to come in and ask lots of questions and try and learn about the context, because um, that has been tremendously beneficial for me. I think we need to acknowledge that as clinicians, we tend to be very task-focused. Our job in healthcare is often to find the resources that our patient needs and get them, to, get them to our patients. So we tend to have a very high task focus. However, if what we're doing in improving health professions education is all about empowerment, then what we need to do is actually work on relationships. The tasks, the tasks of clinical care are important, but if we damage our relationships in taking care of patients, then we don't build a sustainable system. All we do is we, um, we provide a little bubble of Western clinical care that moves around us through our context. So acknowledging the fact that as clinicians, um, particularly as clinicians going to a resource-poor setting, um, I came with a very strong task focus. But in fact, what I've learned is that I need to be more relational. I need to be more relationship focused, even if there are times when that is very challenging. Um, but I think that that's the way to build sustainability, is through a relational focus. Um, and the tasks are important, but the relationships are even more important. I think we've talked enough about compassion and communication. Uh, but I think the fact that I don't think there's any doubt that the right to health care is something that all Rwandans deserve. But also that the solution to this lies in Rwandan hands. Your eye can't solve the right to health care of Rwandans. Um, and the success of the program will be, when, will be when Rwandans can deliver the care that their people need, not when we impose something from outside. So I think, you know, if we think back to that two models of poverty, it's about, it's about empowerment. It's about ensuring that the next generation of Rwandan clinicians is better, better equipped and better enabled to take care of their patients. It's not just about us pouring resources in to meet lacks or perceived lacks on the other side of the world. So in closing, I want to tell you a story because I think it talks about, to me, this story is important because it reminds us of the nature of success in Africa. And it also points to some of the difficulties in measuring it. Uh, this is a close friend of mine, Dr. George, and all of his, uh, all of his brothers. Um, a, couple of, a couple of these are his friends, but these are all his brothers over here. Now, George uh, grew up in a refugee camp in Uganda. His family had to flee during the, the period leading up to the genocide. And in one of those transfers, he was, uh, he was packed into a a cattle truck as a small boy to be moved from one place to the other, and his leg was crushed. Uh, so he actually spent a lot of his childhood crawling around in the dust in a refugee camp in Uganda. He was a middle child of, I think, about 11 children, and his oldest sister was, uh, was one, one year offered a scholarship to go and study accounting. She'd done well at school, and an NGO offered her a scholarship to go and study accounting. She did one year of that degree and dropped out. Now, I'm sure that the NGO at this point who'd offered her the scholarship counted that a failure. I'm sure they said, 
ah, we picked the wrong person, we need to pick someone different next time. She dropped out after one year. But the story doesn't end there, because what she did, the reason she dropped out was she went out to work. And in working, she paid for the education of two of the next brothers, including this one in the middle. Those brothers went off to university, and one of them now has a, a Master of uh, Finance from Oxford, the other one has an engineering degree from one of the, the top schools in the US. Those brothers, in turn, paid for um, Dr. George's education, and so on, down through the family. And by the time I knew Dr. George, by the time I knew uh, Dr. George, he was uh, he was working as a clinician at the district hospital where I worked, and this is his youngest brother, who now, ten years later, has just finished university. Again, paid for and supported by his brother. Eventually, all of those brothers. Uh, banded together and paid for the older sister to go back and finish her account. <laughs> which I think is a nice end to the story. But these, I mean, these are not, these are exceptional people. This is an exceptional family. Um, they're remarkable, remarkable people. And their success is because of who they are and how hard they worked. Um, I like to think of that NGO office and the fact that they measured failure when actually what they achieved was success. And so I think that this story is important to me because it points to the fact that African success is in African hands, but also that we have to be um, very careful of giving up too early because success um, may take a long time and may look very different from what we expect. So uh, in conclusion, I think I'd just like to say thank you for inviting me. Thank you to the Matthews family for making it possible. Uh, thanks to some of the clinicians and colleagues and other people um, who've been able to uh, support me and help me in developing uh, this talk. So thank you very much. Some comments, thoughts, reflections? Questions? We're also basking in this <laughs> wonderful presentation that you've given us. I think what we are the models that, that have been sustainable? And they, I don't know what the, uh, what the ultimate sort of healthcare future look like, but it looks like ours are more, um, more specifically trained technicians who, who can do a, 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 a cholestectomy or a hip repair, whatever. Um, and not a lot of generals who are, who are, who are very expensive and who are going to chew up that $70 in a day. Yes, yeah, so I think, I mean, I think the, the successes that Rwanda has achieved are mostly down at the bottom of the healthcare pyramid. I think that's, that's how the, the changes in metrics you've seen, um, as specialists, we shouldn't be patting ourselves on the back on the, over those because I think they've been achieved by... Um, by the introduction of community healthcare workers, by making a health, uh, a health post and health centre system that works, by improving referral pathways, and through using nurse clinicians to do a lot of diagnosing uh, and educating at the community level. So I think that that is different from, from what we, from you know, a typical Western medical system, and I think that that's great. But I think the acknowledgement in Rwanda is that to go to the next level, 
there's going to need to be good district hospitals. There's going to need to be good surgical capacity. There's going to need to be uh, appropriate tertiary referral centres. And in a way, what HRH is trying to do is build upon those successes that have been achieved already. I think the other thing we sort of reflect on is the fact that what is the role of the tertiary centre uh, in this model? And I think one of the big roles is actually in training and education. So I think that that's very central to what our tertiary hospitals in Rwanda need to be about. They need to be about producing skilled clinicians who can work at all of those levels. There hasn't been a large physician assistant program or uh, it's mostly been uh, nurse practitioners that, that have been staffing the health centres. But I think that the, the Ministry is actually thinking again about that. I, I heard some discussions about that recently. So that, that may change again. Yes, so there's, a, there's obviously been a large new oncology centre open in the north of Rwanda, and the Partners in Health Centre at Butare. Um, I think any time you make major changes to a healthcare system, kind of what I've learnt the hard way, is you expect lots of unintended consequences. And I think that that's one of the big challenges in, as, a, as, an exter as an outsider coming in, is that it's very, very hard to, it's hard enough to anticipate in your own hospital what the unintended consequences will be of major system change. There's all sorts of knock-on effects in a complex system. But I think when you go and work somewhere cross-culturally that those effects are even more difficult to measure. Um, I do think, I mean, there's, while we talk about empowerment being important, there are real lacks in the system. There are things that don't work, there are things that don't exist that need to be brought into the system to provide better health care. So I don't think you have to have an absolute dichotomy between empowerment and fixing, fixing holes or lacks in the system. And I think short-term philanthropy is a great way of fixing short-term holes in the system. I just don't think that... If you're on about empowerment, I don't think you can do that with a one-week visit or a million dollars of new equipment. I think it takes more long-term engagement than that. Don, we'll take your final question. Um, there are a number of countries in Africa that have suffered from brain drain, um, that is, uh, medical school graduates being uh, recruited to the United States, Canada, Australia. Um, yes. And is, how is Rwanda protecting itself from that? Yes, so there's a couple of things that Rwanda does to try and protect itself. One is that because all the, um, the, or because nearly all of the public higher learning education is funded by the government, uh, students are bonded to places for a number of years after they graduate. That, that gives you a little bit of short-term protection, but obviously you, know, you, you, you can't effectively bond physicians for the rest of their careers, and if you tried, it would, it would be very unwise. I think I've learnt that particularly in, you know, New Hampshire wouldn't stand for that, and I don't think Rwanda <laughs> would either. Um, so I think there is a real concern that if we train 100 internists in the next three years, do we have 100 appropriate places for them to work and enough resources to give 100 of them appropriate scopes of practice for their training? I think that, that that's an issue for Rwanda at the national level. Um, if, you t if you take a step back and look at where most of the people who've left the country have left, and there aren't that many, um, a lot of them are working in the region. So we had a number of doctors respond to the Ebola crisis in Liberia and Sierra Leone. 
I've written references for a couple of faculty to go and work in South Sudan uh, in the missions there. Um, we've had clinicians uh, work in Uganda, in Malawi, and other, in other parts of the region. So I guess if you, take, if you take two steps back from the Rwandan context and say, is this a good thing or a bad thing for the world, then I think having well-trained clinician educators all over the region um, might not be such a bad result for the HRH program. Thank you. Tim, I want to thank you. You are so appropriate as our Matthews physician speaker this year, and we and just opening our eyes to what's going on there. Thank you for everything you're doing. Thank you.